Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Clap, clap, clap. The audience is erupting in cheers. Oh, oh my God. Blow out those candles. Ooh, blow out more than oh, the no. candles. <laughs> With <laughs> that kind of serenade. <laughs> I know. My God. Ste- steamy. A steamy birthday wish. Uh, Everybody, it's Troy's birthday week. It is my birthday week. Thank you, Roger. It's been a it's been a great one. It's been a great one. And we are back at Dark Night of the Podcast to celebrate my birthday week with a very special title. A very special title that is very on the nose, dare I say. <laughs> of course, this was a title that um, I, I knew, I knew, I knew we had to cover it. I knew it. And what better time to do it than now? But yes, folks, happy birthday to me. That's the whole uh, theme of this episode. And you know what, guys? If you want to be nice and you want to do a little something for me for my birthday, you know what you could do that would make me super happy? And it does. It doesn't even cost you a thing. What, Troy? Is to go to Apple Podcasts, search "Dark Night of the Podcast," click that five stars, and write us a little review. We are up to thirty nine, thirty nine ratings. Roger, we got a brand new five star review. Somebody left us that was very nice. That's all I want for my birthday. Seriously, that would make me so happy to see three, four, five more or more reviews or more five-star ratings pop up for the podcast because that's that would mean the world to me or hey if you want to shell out a few bucks towards me check out our patreon patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast we gotta thank we have two new patrons roger we have to thank cameron chris cameron and jaquana williams Thank you, guys. They are enjoying the plethora, and when I say plethora, I mean that, of bonus content we now have on this Patreon page, guys. You are missing out if you haven't gave it a gander. There are over 30 bonus episodes up now, including, how many, I think, 16 full-length reviews? I mean, we're just churning them out. Oh, my God. It's, it's a lot. It's a cornucopia. Of material. I mean, there is so much to listen to. I was to. looking, you know, and I was I was looking actually back over the titles because I'm going to make, I wanted to make a graphic to promote the Patreon and the films that we've covered. And we have covered some really, I think, interesting films that I think, God, I, I, I want more people to hear these episodes because they're so good. We did, I mean, if we did fucking Clue. 
A good one. A we did obsessed with obsessed with Beyonce. I know. I mean, we've done some great ones. So check it out, guys. Little little birthday love for me. That's all I ask. He ain't asking for much. My God, it's I ain't pennies. asking for much. No, all he's asking for this birthday is that whatever you give to him, you make it bloody. Right, Troy? The bloodiest. The bloodiest. Which the bloodiest of the birthdays. bloodiest of birthdays that and come on how how more flawlessly can we transition into the title we are talking about this evening? It is the one and only fucking bloody birthday. What a treat! <laughs> this movie. I mean, I'm sorry, but what more could I ask for from a film of this era? If I'm going to ask for it, Troy, this movie gives it to me in spades. Oh, I mean, this movie has everything you can, I mean, where do we even start? Where do we even start? The dance numbers, low. There's dance numbers, (laughs) topless dance numbers. There's random topless teenagers fucking in every nook and cranny of the small town. There's the most inept police department in fucking existence that I've ever seen in a movie. Um, I mean, these people, good grief. And the single most maniacal children (sighs) we have ever seen. Well. I mean, two of them, two of them, two of them one of them, one of them's the, he's not given much to do. I feel like they felt he was the, they knew he was like the worst actor. So they're like, yeah, you just stand there and you know, when he is doing something, much. there's a bag over his head. So, so yeah. but no, two of these fuckers, I mean, Curtis alone is, oh, is a mastermind. God. He's a mastermind on the level of a goddamn bond villain. This fucker, he is terrifyingly manipulative (laughs) first of all he is a loose cannon he is screaming at people left and right and people are like okay with it and this guy is just he's fucking crazy he is the reason i do not want children but we got to acknowledge though that you know who you know who this actor is right i don't i mean this is bill jacoby he went on to be in just one of the guys as Joyce Heiser's annoying brother that taught her how to, you know, adjust himself. He was in a fucking episode of Golden Girls as as Blanche's smart alecky grandson that comes to visit. You remember that episode? So he's got a type, is what we're saying. That's this little fucker. That is this God little fucker. It. He's I mean, listen, I ain't saying he's not good. He's great, but he's oh, just absolutely detestable. Every second he's on camera in this movie, every second his face is on that film. You can't stand this kid. And same with the fucking little blonde broad with the braids. You know who I'm talking about. Is it Debbie? Debbie. It's Debbie. I fucking hate her so much. But I guess that's the goal. I guess like the goal of this movie is to somehow, some way manipulate you, the viewer, into hating children. (laughs) And it succeeds because I fucking hate these little pricks. Oh, yeah, they're awful. They're awful. And you get you get a sense real early on in the film just how fucking diabolical and relentless these little fuckers are. Yeah, so Bloody Birthday, which was released back in 1981, around the same time as another birthday slasher film that we covered, Roger, Happy Birthday to Me, which I think we can all agree. I mean, I don't think there'd be much debate, maybe. I think Happy Birthday to Me is the far superior film. But that's not to say this one isn't just a an enjoyable, you know, 
sit back, have some popcorn, have some laughs. But this movie tends to verge on the, the, such the side of ridiculousness that it's really hard to uh, take any of it seriously. And we're going to talk. I'm sure we we are kind of on the same page with a lot of this stuff. But yeah, I, I one thing that stood out to me about this film, Roger, is you know in the good old days of blockbuster videos, you know, and and mom pa video stores, and you know I've mentioned this before, and I'm sure you have the same experience, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have the same experience of being able to go to the video store with your parents on a Friday or Saturday night, and your mom letting you pick out a film, and you know my little gay ass would rush over to the horror section, and how would I determine what film I wanted to watch? The VHS cover art, of course. Exactly the VHS cover. This film has one of the more I think memorable VHS cover arts from that era. Wouldn't you say the birthday with the, the, the birthday cake with the hand coming out of it with the flames and bloody fingertips. There's also the one of the gal laying on her back with candles on her knockers. And then there's the children looming (laughs) over her, but they're not the same children. And there's an additional child as well. So it's, confusing because it's similar to the film but it doesn't quite get it but like i still like it i've never seen the one with the candles on her knockers i'm gonna have to google that find it (laughs) you will find it okay okay but i like the one i i hey i'm fond of the one with the hand coming out of the cake that's your very traditional one that always i mean that caught you can bet your bottom dollar that caught my attention as a child i was like that is it and then watching it and realize oh my god this is a film about kids that are fucking killers up until that point, there wasn't really much like that. You know, also think about it. There is that movie. And I find like the structure and some of the like uh, personalities of the children are very similar to the film. And we're going to have to cover it someday. It has Leif Garrett in it. And Rosario from Will and Grace is in it. It's from like 74. It's called Devil, Devil Times Five. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen it. Okay. It's a, it's a killer it's a killer children movie okay it's like five five little fucking brats that are terrorizing these like the three couples that are staying at this like lodge and there's like the infamous scene where one of the kids puts a piranha in the woman's bathtub (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's ridiculous but i mean i I, the kids some of the personality traits really remind me of that film so i'm wondering if the filmmaker behind this film had seen that but then also like the children we just covered the children a few episodes ago that came out around the same time so it's like there is a slight little moment in slasher history where killer kids kind of became a thing but this was really i think the first film that i personally saw that had children as the villains well and the thing about this film and the approach it takes and we, you touched on it a little bit earlier but it's not like the storyline here is slowly like developing only to reveal that you know halfway in or so it's actually the children that are doing it no this movie like right off the bat as soon as you get to present day killings are happening and th- these children couldn't be any more obvious if they tried. Like, it is clear <laughs> that these children are killing people. Their motivation is apparently an eclipse, but I think it's just because they're all fucking assholes. Uh, they're just going around killing people willy-nilly. Um, and they seem pretty okay with it. So it is interesting in the approach that you do get introduced to these kids and they're given elements of, like, personalities. Like, you mentioned the personalities earlier. One thing about the children is... For the most part, as soon as those kids were like under that like toxic gas 
influence, whatever the fuck happened. They like they were basically void of personality. They were all just kind of like zombies. So here, with the kids actually having the chance to have dialogue, have emotional responses, have outbursts, it's just a lot more material to make these kids, like I mentioned before, more and more unlikable. Uh, it feels like when they wrote the script here, they weren't scared to go there with making the kids just really the villains of the movie in every sense of the word. Yeah, and you know, I, the 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 whole backstory about why they're supposed killers, I I don't know. I honestly don't know if it was even necessary. In fact, I think the film would have been much more creepier and disturbing if that wasn't even part of the plot. That you just got these three fucking kids that had a con- had a strong connection, and guess what? They're just little assholes murderous little assholes i tend to believe that that would have made the film a little bit more like i said disturbing because the film starts we'll get right into it. the film starts with a hospital the windiest fucking hospital i've ever seen i mean the wind is just hooting and hollering it looks like a goddamn tornado and this nurse is out there standing there smoking a cigarette watching the solar eclipse and this doctor pulls up roger which is none other than none other than jose ferrar who is literally in the movie for like 20 seconds he has like one line He's like, oh, we better go in and deliver those babies and quit staring at this eclipse then. And that's it. But the whole story that we get is that these three babies were born at the exact same time on the exact same day during a solar eclipse. It's nonsense. Like, let's be honest. It's fucking nonsense. The whole need to have there be some kind of like fantastical element to this. I completely agree with what you said in that it would be so much more effective and just creepy if these kids were just naturally, um, it was their natural instinct to just kill because they're shitty. They're shitty people. And that's just like what they've become. But to add this whole like very thin plot aspect dealing with this eclipse, it's just not brought up enough. Like it really doesn't play a factor at all. It becomes contrived because then they they to to, to be able to like explain it or, or to be able to like you know harken back to that opening scene. What do they do? They they give the um, Joyce character a hobby, and her hobby is writing um, astrology charts for people. Oh my god! And I'm like, how much? How how contrived can you get? Like, what teenage girl is walking around doing astrology charts for people? And like that's the explanation. She's the one that halfway during the movie comes to realization. Oh, after she does Debbie's chart, like I said, okay, she, I know she looks like a fucking nerd, but I don't buy that this girl is walking around doing astrology charts for every goddamn person in the neighborhood, just willy nilly. Because she, <laughs> at one point, she does she does Debbie's chart. She's like, oh, Debbie was born during a solar eclipse, so her chart is weird. I mean, it's like, come on, it is very contrived, and you're yeah, it it doesn't. Uh... It doesn't add any extra oomph or heft to the story. If anything, it just kind of slogs it down a little bit. But I will say this. like, I really was prepared to dislike the character of Joyce. We're going to touch on her really quick. By the end of the movie, I liked her way more than I thought I would. And I don't really mind her delivery of certain moments, like when she's talking about that. It's just, you're right. It is a very weird like character trait for her to have. Yeah, I don't mind her. You know, uh, upon these subsequent viewings for this particular episode, she kind of grew on me. I remember like the first couple times watching it, I thought she was like horrible. Like I could not stand the character. But, you know, I mean, she seems 
as I'm older now, she seems a lot more relatable and a little bit realistic, minus some of the, like I said, the forced personality traits or character traits they try to um, to give the character to advance the plot or to explain certain plot, plot elements. I mean, other than that, she's fine. You know, it's Lori Lethen. She kind of is one of the undersung scream queens of that era, right? I mean, she she did this film. She did uh, The Prey, which she's actually pretty good at, and she did Return to Horror High. I mean, so she has some some horror under her belt. So she's not terrible. It's just, yeah, the, the character is just given some weird choices. And I think that's the case with everybody in this movie. Like uh, one thing that really, I think, makes this movie a, a tough sell is how like oblivious everyone in this film is to the fact that it's blatantly obvious that these kids are the one that, that are, that are killing everybody. Like these kids are not trying to hide it. I mean, you're trying to, we'll get there. We will get there. But, and it goes back to my point about like, is this who the fuck is running this police department <laughs> that they can't figure out two, eight year old, three, eight year olds are, they're not clean. They're not cleaning up. They're not wearing gloves. It's not like they're, they're leaving bodies in the front yard. It's not like they're, I mean, good. These are literal children, like in every sense of the word. She has pigtails. The one is a bowl cut. Like they are, they should not be intimidating in any way. And they still really aren't, but somehow they're capable of just extreme violence. I don't know where it came from. Apparently this eclipse. And so now we, we come up on this cemetery sequence. And right off the bat, like right off the bat, people are just people are just making out in cemeteries. We've got some light breast fondling. Is it me or was this actresses? Okay, so these are supposed to be teenagers, right? It's Annie and what was his name? Tom or something. Okay, they're supposed to be teenagers because they go to school with, you know, Bev and, and Joyce, right? And they look like teenagers. But is it me or did they did they dub the girl's voice with like a, a, a chain smoking sixties actress. Stop. I have the same fucking note. Are you I have the yes. Same note. I do. Oh my God. Like she opens her mouth and she's like, red light, Tom. <laughs> they're playing this. They're playing this rape game called red light, green light where, where he's, no, it's, it's called ambulance. I'm sorry. It's called ambulance. And he's, he's driving the ambulance and he's like, he's like, you know, you just tell the ambulance when to stop at the, at the red light. And like, he's going all up down her thigh and everything, getting ready to squeeze on her hungers. <laughs> like he just starts, we get more time, more screen time is spent on this woman's breast than is spent on her actual face. <laughs> well, yeah. And, uh, she, yeah, she, she tells him red light. And then he's like, oh, do you really think an ambulance would stop at a red light? And he's like, fucking starts fingering her. I'm like, well, that's kind of date rapey, but hey, whatever. Yeah. But they this bro- this broad's voice is dubbed with, I don't know who they, Mercedes McCambridge? I don't know. But it is ridiculous. But she's like, I want to get out of here. And where do they go? They go into, they fucking start fucking in a goddamn uh, grave hole. There is literally a a body that's about to be buried. They have the grave dug. And these two, because she doesn't want to be seen, even though they're in a dark cemetery, he takes her and they jump into this dug grave. And he continues to flop her her tits out and licking them and sucking them. And all of a sudden, someone starts kicking dirt down on them, right? And he looks up, he's like, God damn it, Wade, if that's you, I'm going to kick your ass. So he stands up and we are treated to the first 
violent to kill. I mean, as violent as I guess it's whatever. It's a shovel hitting him in the head a couple times and he falls to the ground. And then poor Annie has a jump rope wrapped around her throat and is choked to death in a matter of five seconds. And she's lifted off the ground. There are, there are, there's a couple of shots of her little uh, bare feet flailing as she's being pulled up, which knowing who the killers are, uh, unless it was all three of them pulling her up, I don't know that they're going to be able to lift a teenage. You're not telling me Debbie is lifting a teenage girl off the ground, and it's a, it's very it's inferred heavily that Debbie is the one that kills with the jump rope, right? Because we see her numerous times trying to strangle people with this fucking jump rope. Troy, imagine like the view from above of like these three children all gang together with uh, this jump rope lifting this poor. Poor woman from the ground. Like, it's just so implausible. And frankly, it's absurd. But I, I love it. Um, I do, you know, I will say that, yes, it's it's kind of like lackluster in the execution of like the shovel to the head and so forth. But in my mind, it read that like they were both just kind of knocked out, like pa- like she passed out and he was knocked unconscious. And then they were like buried alive in my mind. And, and that, in a way, makes it creepier to me. Because they do clearly bury these people alive. <laughs> well, they start to throw dirt on them, but I don't know that if they're buried alive because their bodies are found pretty quickly the next morning, right? With the with the um, jump rope handle that falls off because there's a shot of the jump rope handle in her lap in Annie's lap as she's laying there dead. I will say I do like this little moment where after like Annie strangled the the boy, her boyfriend like comes comes to consciousness again and jumps up and tries to like save her and gets whapped in the head a couple more times. Uh, I thought that was kind of a little effective touch, but I don't know if I, I guess I didn't, I did not get the get that they were buried alive because of the fact that they, the bodies were found like the next day, the fucking sheriffs at school literally. Okay. <laughs> the sheriff is at this elementary school, basically accusing all of these children of being murderers. <laughs> and the ones who are murderers couldn't be any more obvious if they tried. They're just sitting there making faces, chuckling about it. Uh, Debbie's just looking like a total fucking bitch the whole time, rolling her eyes. Uh, but they're very, like, very obvious about this. And I don't know how people are picking up on it right off the bat. <laughs> Oh, it's it's insane. It's insane. Before that scene, though, we are we are introduced to our lead, who is Joyce, played by Lori Lethen. Uh, just a quick little moment where she's at home studying. She's, you know, doing her astrology charts, as we see. It's all all these astrology books and these astrology charts are laid out on the coffee table. And she she makes herself a little sandwich. And we get this little ominous moment with a, a shot of the knife on the counter and like someone approaching the window and the window opening and someone crawling through. So we're like, oh, no. But it's just her little brother, Timmy. I'm fine with Timmy. I'm fine with Timmy. Timmy actually is pretty sensible. Yeah. And I like the relationship between uh, Joyce and Timmy. I think it actually is very natural. One thing I really want to acknowledge at this point is the the size of the headphones uh, that Joyce is wearing. Because they're gigantic, and this and this fucking massive contraption she's working on in front of her, she couldn't be any more distracted. And this kid just absolutely sucks at being dis- discreet as he sneaks in through the window. Because, like, literally, this woman's headphones on her head are the size of like <laughs> fully developed 
two-year-old children. They're so big. Like, and they're just like, and she like somehow manages to notice him sneaking in. I don't know how. I don't know how. I was distracted by those fucking headphones. God damn. <laughs> it's not their only appearance no, in the film. So they, they come. But he, uh, she asks him why he's sneaking in the window. He said he was outside feeding the dogs and he got locked out. I mean, okay, I guess they're trying to make him a suspect, particularly with the next scene coming up with the sheriff in the um, in the classroom, uh, talking about you know if you were in the cemetery last night. But I don't know. Are you okay? So Roger, answer me this: You're a sheriff, right? And you find two teenagers brutally murdered in your local cemetery. Would it be on your radar for like the first place you're going to go to question people is the local elementary school? <laughs> you know, man. You, is it is it like I need to go talk to that second grade class? Show me that. Show me that prison lineup. <laughs> With it just it just was really an odd scene for me because i could not imagine this is a small town meadowvale california tiny town they there is it's even mentioned it was like the first murder in like 30 years right this is big news right you are really as the sheriff going to go to the second grade classroom and question the students well did he not find the handle from her jump rope in there i know I know that's he found a handle from a jump rope, but I still wouldn't leap to oh well, it must have been a kid that killed him. <laughs> I mean, but it was is the thing. It, it was. was. I'm, I, it was. I know it was. it was. I know. But I'm talking about like from a law enforcement perspective, like not knowing, I would not be like oh well, I think it was a second grader that I better. If we haven't made it clear by now, Troy. I do think, and listeners, I think we'll all agree at this point. This is a movie where it's best just not to question or ask like there if there if if i was really going to sit here and like nitpick like the implausibilities of this film i would have a laundry list that like <laughs> went out the door like there are so many aspects of this film that just feel like disjointed and weird and just like not totally like realistic or believable like the scene where she's chased through the fucking junkyard where <laughs> the children are like <laughs> They have like gunny sacks over their heads and they're like <laughs> driving this like vehicle like one of them is like pushing the <laughs> we'll talk about it we'll talk about <laughs> it in a minute but like is that really like a realistic scenario it's effective but it does not make any sense whatsoever well what he does what the sheriff succeeds in doing by doing this is getting himself killed because the kids the three kids who we have to say, Debbie, Curtis, and Stephen. Stephen is kind of the, the least developed of the three. We mentioned at the beginning of the, of the podcast, and I find it very interesting that they really don't give him a lot to do, and they really focus a lot on Curtis and Debbie. Curtis and Debbie have 99% of the dialogue of the trio. Uh, I think Stephen has maybe like two lines, and I think it's kind of obvious that he's the weakest link, and I wonder if that had something to do with it. I mean, I wonder if the if the director and the filmmakers realized uh, when they got out on set that this kid probably couldn't pull his weight, so it was better not to really let him have moments to shine because it really is the Curtis and Debbie show. Yeah, it definitely is. Even in the sense of like how like the backstory ties together and everything, it's just like the Curtis and Debbie play very pivotal aspects, uh, pivotal roles in the actual story itself and and how they're associated with certain events they each individually have kind of their own 
storyline in a way going on. I he, he does not. It really feels like a, he does not have the same level of attention. No. So what they realize real quickly is that the the father, the sheriff, the sheriff happens to be Debbie's father. Have to mention that as well because he does ask a question. He does ask if they know what the word murder means, and she, of course, is the one that stands up and answers us. She's like, "Yeah, it's when you kill somebody, like on TV." And he's like, "No, honey, not like TV. Murder is in real life." And she like gets this scowl on her face and sits down. But and he pulls out the handle of the jump rope and says. Does anybody know? Does anybody have a jump rope that this came off of? And that's when the kids realize, oh shit, you know, we we left that behind. So they all give each other these, uh, and I do think this is creepy because they do it throughout the film. When they decide that they're going to kill somebody, Roger, what do they do? They look at each other and they give a slight nod. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so creepy. They are acknowledging what they have to do. And there's a moment where they do this. They look at each other and they they give that eerie nod and then the bell rings and we get fucking susan strasberg as the teacher oh she's great though she's detestable everyone in this movie is unlikable to a certain extent like there's nobody in this film who is truly lovable or endearing even joyce has moments where she's just kind of obnoxious but this teacher is just i'm sorry to use the word an absolute cunt (laughs) She is definitely one of those teachers that you could tell uh, revels in the control she has over children. Like there's this whole moment and it just made me cringe because I'm like, oh God, I hate teachers like that. It's when the bell rings to be the dismissal bell. And she's like, that bell does not mean you're dismissed. It means it's a cue for me to dismiss you. And she's like, you all have to sit up and sit straight before I dismiss you. And she's like, she makes them all sit up and she's like, you, you better not run out of here like hooligans. So they all have to get up and walk calmly out. I'm like, fuck you, lady. And then Debbie and the two boys, Curtis and Stephen, go up to her. And Debbie very cheerfully asks her, uh, Mrs. Davis, can the class be excused from homework on Monday? And Mrs. Davis is like, why? She's like, it's our birthdays. And she's like, no, homework is more important than birthdays. And just because you all three were born on the same day doesn't make you special. I'm like, well, lady, you just signed your death certificate. <laughs> these, oh, like you could tell these kids are in that moment. Like, we need to fucking kill this broad immediately. And I get it. Like, I get it. Uh, you know, I don't like the kids. They're horrible people. But at least they are pretty good at selecting people to to kill off until things get out of hand, and then they're just killing everybody. But at least for the most part, this teacher, total bitch. Total bitch. Inexcusable how bitchy this teacher is to these poor children. The the, the dad, you got to do it. I mean, I'm so, you know, they're probably right. They're going to be discovered. You got to do it. <laughs> like Debbie's, Debbie's like, I'll take it. She's like, I, I accept what it is. And I admire her for that. I got to give her credit. I admire her for being willing to kill her father. It's a difficult scene. It kind of shocked me when I first saw it. The fact that so early on in the film, you're going to show this little girl gleefully kill her father. So after this encounter with the teacher, you cut to the three of them at Debbie's house. And this little brothel that she's running, I mean, this is this little this little girl's fucking a, a little madam. She has a whole uh, incomes coming in from letting people fucking spy on her sister doing uh, extended strip teases in her bedroom after school every day. 
And Miss Debbie is just raking in the money. And we got to say, folks, if you're, if you're old enough to know who we're talking about, if you're old enough to remember the good old MTV days in the 80s when they actually had music videos and VJs, they called them, not DJs, VJs, you have Julie Brown, who was one of the prominent VJs on MTV. This is who plays fucking Beverly. And I got to say, Roger, this fucking strip tease goes on forever and you get a lot of tit. What do you think about this? I mean, these kids, these eight-year-old boys are paying Debbie a quarter to peep through this peephole, which I got to say, this peephole is the size of a goddamn dinner plate. How Bev does not see that this is in her room is beyond me. We're not talking a peephole the size of you know a, a nail hole. This is a full-fledged hole that's knocked out of the wall. I got a few things I got to say. First of all, I keep feeling like I hate Debbie. But I constantly also have to give her her flowers because she's making strong choices beginning to end in this movie. She's willing to offer father for her own betterment. I tip my hat. Um, she is an entrepreneur. She is finding opportunities when she sees them and she's running with them. And I have to say, the people, the fact that the sister doesn't know this people exist at this point uh, means she is oblivious. And if anything... Uh, she's brought this on herself because the hole in the wall, it is literally probably like a two foot by two foot. <laughs> like, I mean, it's not, it's not that big, but like, it's gigantic. And like, imagine the day that Debbie stumbled upon this random scenario, finding that her sister does in fact perform multiple minute long dance numbers in nothing but her panties, or if even that. She takes her panties off. I just find, I mean, I know, okay, I know it's editing. It's, uh, these kids are obviously not really watching this in real life. But the way it is edited together, it is very prolonged. And it just becomes a little uncomfortable and, and dirty to watch these like little eight-year-old boys, especially the blonde. It's like, oh, he's he's like really getting into it. And he's like, oh, my God. Oh, oh. And, you know, they're, and we're, we're seeing his perspective of, of Bev, Julie Brown, like rubbing her tits. There's a moment where she's like takes a, a boa and is like wrapping it around her body and wrapping it around her, her tits and like shaking her ass and pulling her underwear down. And like when she pulls her underwear down, Curtis is like, oh my God. And it's like, this is kind of not pleasant to be watching. I, I agree. But removing the children for a moment, I've got to say, like we have seen some dance numbers in some horror films. We've seen a lot of them. And I can't deny the fact that Beverly's dance number for what it is, is one of the, the best of them. I mean, she's giving it her all. Boobies are bouncing. She's moving. She's shaking. And the track is hot. I mean, she's just going. She's going. She's kicking. I mean, not really, but you know, she's hitting her hips. Like she's just feeling the song. She's fucking into it, like tossing her hair. And like, I want to be uncomfortable, but I'm mostly just impressed by this dance sequence. <laughs> What's well, entertaining? It's entertaining, you know. As gay men, I think we can appreciate this this this, this lovely yes. woman, you know, giving it her all. Um, I, I I I like. I'm sorry. Just, it's such a long. It's so long. It's. It is. It's 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 very long. It becomes like I was looking at my watch a couple times. I'm like, what? How the fuck long is it going to do this? <laughs> 
like there's layers to it too like she like at first she just takes that top off and it's just boobies and you're like if you kind of think eventually you're like okay this is <laughs> this has to like come to a conclusion and then no instead just like more clothing comes off and it's like and then there's the boa damn. number you're the, the black boa she gets <laughs> It's very erotic. And then does it? And then does it? She try on. She tries on two different blouses, right? She does. She tr- she tries on the first one and realizes she doesn't like that one, so she takes that one off and tries on the other one. All the while, these boys are these little eight year old boys are literally. It seems like, and I hate to say this, but they're the way they're framing it and making them make noises. You're like these kids are about ready to jerk off. I mean, it is that disturbing and that just like, ugh. And Debbie is just sitting there. She's the whole time she has the pile of coins in her hand and she just she's just beaming. It is it is uncomfortable when you like when you do contrast it back and forth. The the dance number is so entertaining you almost don't even think about it at times. But yeah, you have to think like these are these are like kids and they're like very aware of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. the The boys are very sexualized, like in this film. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, because well, it is because then there. I mean, the one, especially Curtis, seems to have a, a affection for killing like naked people. It's just weird. But I, you know, here I do want to say this about Bev, the Bev character. I really, I, I like the character. I, I really wish she was given more to do. Because she is such a sassy, likable character. You know who she reminds me of? And I really think in this this scene, after this dance number ends, it transitions into a scene where she sees Joyce walking down the street with her school books, right? And she calls out the window. She's like, hey, Joyce, wait up. And she, she runs out, jogs up next to Joyce. And there's that tracking shot that Halloween did, right? I think this is the moment the film, I find there are several moments where this film wants to be Halloween. And this is definitely one of them. Oh my God, it's it's glaring. Yeah, this is one of their, I think this is their homage. Instead of three girls walking down the street with their school books, you get two. And at this moment, you know who I really think that they were trying to model this Bev character after? Annie. Annie, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, I, ob- it's obvious. Because then what, as they're walking, she has that same like, sarcastic like flip it tone that annie uses throughout the halloween film and it is even hammered more home when when the sheriff pulls up next to them and you realize the sheriff is her father right just like annie it is so aggressively halloween it is almost shocking when you watch it play out because it hits so many key little elements of halloween one after another bing bang boom um, starting from the the overall look of the shot, I mean, it is shot almost exactly the same that that tracking shot, just like they had the overall like look and aesthetic of the neighborhood, though a little more like maybe a little more of like a oh, what is it? Where's it supposed to be? Like, is it with like Florida or something? I'm trying to think of where this is. This is California. Yeah, California. This is California. Yeah, so it, it definitely like it doesn't feel as like Midwest, you know, but it still has the same vibe of that kind of area, that kind of neighborhood. And that translates very much here. I personally feel like the film feels more like Midwest than it does California. Yeah. Because there is there are a lot of the little like um, settings that are very like Midwestern, like the cemetery which is very like overgrown with shrubbery and stuff. And then the junkyard, it seems like something you would very much find in a, in a small Midwestern town. The school has a very Midwestern look to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you definitely get the, the fact that they were trying to, we'll say quote unquote homage Halloween. And I really think the Bev character was supposed to be an Annie type character and she's likable enough, but she's just not given much to do in the film. 
Uh, and not that she's bad. I, I, I like the character a lot. And, and and that's a testament to that because I really wanted to see more of the character. But you just don't get it. And her father pulls up and tells her that she can't go out to the drive-in with Willard tonight. And this is the comment she makes is like, oh, one murder in 20 years and he thinks he's Kojak. Very much something that Annie would say, right? Oh, she is so much that um, trope, like sassy best friend. And you can tell they had her. I feel like they literally said, watch this movie, play it like her. Because she hits all those key little moments, all the little jabs. She's sassy. She's cute. She's confident. That's another thing. She has Annie's confidence. And she carries that through the movie as well. And so, yeah, I, I had the same note, exact same note. The dad gets home, sheriff gets home, um, and you know he kisses, kisses his wife, and they have this obnoxiously large security system that is referenced <laughs> numerous. I I've never seen a security system like this. What the fuck it is, is it? It's it's a giant like box on the wall. Oh my god! It is comedically large. It looks like something from like a nineteen fifties science fiction movie. Like, like it's it's just so exaggerated. I have no idea. Is that really what they looked like back then? <laughs> Alarm systems? I don't know. But this was the eight. This was the eighties. I don't. I don't know why people were w- wanting to have alarm systems. But he's like, you know, the alarm only works if you actually shut the front door. There's a maniac out there. <laughs> oh my god! Well, I would feel secure with something that massive <laughs> handling the task of alerting me. I'm sure it can certainly alert me. In the meantime, uh, the three little brats, Debbie, Stephen, and Curtis are out in her backyard playing, and there is this ominous scene where uh, Curtis takes the the blue skateboard and like positions it on the steps of the back porch, and then Debbie calls for her dad to come outside. She's like, Daddy, Daddy, come outside. I want to show you something. So, of course, he comes outside and he we see the close up of his feet and he actually steps over the skateboard. So that doesn't really work, although we find out it's kind of an elaborate little setup they're trying to do. Right. They're trying to frame it to make it look like he fell on the skateboard when, in fact, what happens is he walks up to Debbie and, you know, it's just it's really kind of hard to watch because this is her father. And she is luring him into a brutal death and she's smiling, like beaming the entire time. And when he gets to her, what does she do? She drops the jump rope that they used to strangle that big breasted girl at the beginning of the film that is missing the handle. And he bends down to pick it up and he realizes what it is. And he's like, Debbie, what did you do? And all of a sudden fucking Steven comes out of nowhere and starts beating the sheriff to death with the baseball bat. I feel like Steven, for having limited dialogue, is also like the 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 brute force of the group. Like he does the dirty work. Like he's driving the car later. Like you know what I mean. Like he is kind of just the the dumb muscle, and he comes in and just <laughs> beats this grown man over the fucking head. And it's honestly very very hard to watch. It's pretty horrifying. Well, because Debbie is Debbie is smiling when it's going on. She is smiling. And then as he's beating this sheriff in the head, uh, fucking Timmy just happens to come into their backyard. And at the moment where they're trying to drag the body up to the steps to make it look like he fell. So Timmy sees this and he's like, what's going on? And right away, Debbie's like, mom, dad fell. Dad fell. 
So the mom rushes outside and see and finds the body laying on the steps. Now I'm no expert, Roger, but I would imagine that any medical examiner with any sort of half-ass education would be able to tell the difference between somebody being beat repeatedly in the face and head with a baseball bat and somebody slipping on a uh, skateboard and hitting their head on steps. You know, <laughs> I I ask myself a lot of these questions, Troy. I do have to say that if I were to walk out there and look at that situation and, and see the very obvious wound from the from the the pummeling my skull just took from that stick that that kid beat me with i would you know if i saw this or if i was you know a bystander who saw me i would assume that this had to be caused by somebody because there's no way based off of seeing this body that it would have taken this kind of blow to the skull and be laying in this position. You get what I mean? Like, it just doesn't make sense. The way he collapses there, it, it, it doesn't match where the yeah. wound is. Like, it, I don't know. And like, I, I'm curious as to how they would explain, how these children were planning on explaining that really making sense. But I do think it also is, it, it makes sense to me the fact that these are eight-year-old kids, they are maniacal, but there's also shit they don't know. Like the sloppiness, it makes sense to me. But I get it. I get that. I totally understand that. But then we're supposed to believe then that the adults, police police uh, officers, coroners, parents, every, teachers are just as sloppy in, in not being able to recognize what's really going on. Because like I said, they beat this dude in the head at least seven or eight times and in the face. Okay. And you're going to tell me that they're just going to dismiss it as, oh yeah, he slipped on the, on the skateboard and fell and hit his head. Plus they don't even try to hide the murder weapon. If you notice all Steven does is just toss it, just toss it in, in some bushes. It's like right there. It'd be covered in blood. You would imagine. Uh, I mean, that, that's like I said, I think that's the biggest issue in, in like totally buying into this movie is that I can understand the kids are sloppy and stupid and, and naive. But I can't buy that all the adults around them are as well. It just I'm not going to say that this is an answer or a solution here, but I will say like this is, I guess, part of what made it somewhat palatable for me is the 1980s. They were a different time you know, and forensics and so forth has evolved a lot. I'm not saying that this is truly an excuse, but don't you think that people would hesitate before they started accusing the children right away? Don't you want to think like, don't you want to think they're kids? I'm not, I'm not talking about like DNA samples and things like that. I'm talking about the very blatant fact that this dude was beat in the head <laughs> 10 times and has, has had skull bashed in. Anybody would be able to look at that and be like, okay, yeah, that was not caused by uh, a fall right. on, a, on a step. No, you're right. Oh, yeah, that was my point. Okay, so cut to the funeral. <laughs> this wife, this mother, though, we have to talk about oh, this, this mother. Woman. All this woman does the entire the entire film is emote. She's constantly emotionally. You know what she reminded me of? She's a very, very, very tranquilized Louise Lasser in Blood Raged. Oh, absolutely. There are moments where you think she's going to cross over to that Louise Lasser zaniness and craziness. She never does, but it's literally brimming below the surface the entire time. I'm like, whew. But yeah, she's like having a fit at the funeral. Of course. I mean, it's her husband. But I mean, 
This lady didn't tell that her husband, her husband's skull was bashed in either. Come on. But there's this moment where like, because the three kids know that Timmy saw them, they look over at Timmy and then they all nod at each other. Like, yep, he's next because he kind of knows that something's not right with this. Now, so what happens now is the next day they are playing hide and go seek in the junkyard. And there's this moment where uh, Stephen is it. So he's counting to 10 and Curtis and Timmy have to hide. And Curtis convinces Timmy, who is very hesitant at first, very smart, to hide in, in this like refrigerator freezer. And at first, Timmy's like, no, that's dangerous. And Curtis is like, oh, I knew you were a chicken. And starts like taunting him. Chicken, chicken, chicken. And Curtis actually gets in. The, the 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 one of the sides of the freezer and like it's like you better hurry up or you're going to be the first to get caught so timmy hesitantly gets in the other side and immediately curtis pops out shuts at him locks him in and then just like brushes his hands and walks away as poor timmy screaming for his life we were talking earlier about how um there are moments in this that are kind of like they they linger on things uh, linger on moments things things are really brutal at times and it, it is at times kind of hard to stomach what you're watching and i have to say here one of the things about this sequence that makes my skin crawl is how they really uh, like make it clear the uh, amount of the passage of time that goes by uh that this kid is trapped in this fr- fridge like they literally their intentions these children these horrible horrible children they're goal is to get this kid this innocent child into this fridge in this junkyard and lock him in there and leave him there to die like their their plan is to leave him there to die and it is very dark i mean what what a just brutal honestly way to kill someone let them just like run out of air (laughs) yeah it's hard to watch again as the passage of time goes on, you see you see that he's getting more and more desperate. But then, you know, we intercut with this short scene of of Joyce talking to, is this supposed to be her teacher? This dude she's talking to about astrology and how the fact that there are there were like three moments in history where like something aligned perfectly and, and all every president that was elected during that time was was assassinated in office. And is this supposed to be a student or yeah, a teacher? I don't know. I mean, is is she like is she like a teacher's assistant? It, I, th- I think she is. I feel like she is. I don't know what the fuck she is, but she, he's like, oh, yeah, that's very fascinating. Do you want to go get coffee sometime? I'm like, aren't you supposed to be your teacher? Because remember, um, Bev was talking about like her having a crush on her newspaper teacher. So I thought that's who this was supposed to be. But then he doesn't look much older than she is. It was weird. We, we never see him again, so it doesn't matter. All right. So finally, uh, Timmy is like furiously trying to get out. He he does have a small flashlight and his desperation is just like getting palpable. He's pounding on the walls. He's like, please let me out, help me out. And there's nobody around. Joyce gets a call from her parents who conveniently have been missing and are missing the entire film. And they're just explained away that they're on vacation. So we never have to actually see her parents. And it actually explains why there's like no parents around her, Timmy, right? So she talks to them briefly. And then it cuts back to Timmy inside the freezer and he is a pretty resourceful kid. I mean, his MacGyver mode kicks in and he sees like this uh, metal piece that's on the attached to like the side of the uh, freezer and he's able to like pull it off 
And then he uses it to shove it up between the slots of the doors and slides it up and down really fast until it unlatches. And he frees himself. I'm like, you go, Timmy. This is a moment where I was like, I like this character. I do like the the fact that when he opens the freezer door, like they we get some like Rocky type music, like championship oh to Eye of the Tiger type music playing. It's like, like it's a victory music. And he gets home and you could tell this poor kid has been through the ringer. And Joyce is like, where have you been? And he is like, Curtis locked me in the freezer. And she doesn't believe him. She's like, I don't be here. Quit lying. All you do is lie. She needs to believe this child. He's absolutely telling the truth. He looks horrible. I mean, he was just on the verge of death. I, and yeah, it does make her early into the film. It kind of makes her for um, it kind of makes it for a sour moment with Joyce. Like you as the viewer, after knowing what what Timmy just went through and how he earned that Rocky music, it, it does make her kind of come off as a little bit of a bitch. Now, luckily, I do think she falls into stride as the movie progresses, but it's a, a bit of a sour note for me. Well, there's this moment in the same scene where she does kind of redeem herself because she sees his hand is cut and she's like, how did that happen? She's like, I told you, you know, he locked me in the freezer. So she goes to clean his hand and he and she asks him, what were you really doing the other night? And he fesses up that he was he went over to Debbie's house, but she wasn't home. And she's like, well, why were you at Debbie's house? And he tells her about the peephole that Debbie charges the the neighborhood boys to watch, you know her sister undress and she's like okay and you know what i don't want you to play with curtis anymore and that's that so there is this maybe moment where she does sort of believe him because she realizes okay he's being honest with me about the peephole maybe he is really telling me the truth now i do like now it cuts to this treehouse scene the next day where steven this is about the only dialogue he has in the entire movie and the dialogue is him mocking mrs davis with in her voice he's like trying to do uh, an old lady voice he's like you're not dismissed until i dismiss you and they're like we're gonna put that bitch in her place and this is the first time we get a view of this scrapbook that debbie is keeping i love that these children literally have like the equivalent of the burn book from mean girls only instead of creating gossip it creates murder <laughs> like like literally like as they kill people they like place it in the book they're like it goes in the book and it's like this is very creepy and horrible evidence to have uh on hand <laughs> as we find out uh but they 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 take poor mrs davis's picture into the into the scrapbook that evening Curtis comes to her uh, to Debbie's window. She lets him in, and there is this moment where they switch out her dad's real gun. So Curtis takes her dad's real gun, which is still in the cabinet that he left it in when he got home before he was murdered. They take his real gun and switch it out with this fake gun that Curtis has had uh, in a couple scenes in earlier in the film. But now, so now he has a real gun. So the next day. He goes into school and Miss Davis is at the counter at the sink cleaning paintbrushes and he comes up behind her and fucking uh, pulls the gun on her. And I got to say, she reacts fairly calm. Like if I was a teacher and a kid pulled a gun on me, I don't think I would be this calm, Roger. 
Well, this shows how much things have changed within <laughs> yes. the school environment. Yes. I'm sure teachers were also probably smoking within the school at a certain point, you know, things such as that. So, yeah, I mean, I was also taken aback by how nonchalant the whole thing was at first, how um, calm she was when she saw it. But then I was also trying to be aware of the fact that school shootings really didn't happen then. And children were more innocent for the most part, except for these fuckers. Yeah, I guess it's hinted at as well that she knows that he has a fake gun because she's like, she's like, Curtis, if you bring that replica gun one more time, I'm going to take it from you. So you put it away. He's like, fine, Miss Davis, I'll put it away. And she's like, make yourself useful and get me some more brushes. And as she like turns her back to him, he proceeds to take his jacket, cover the gun and shoot, shoot the teacher broad daylight. In the middle of the day, at the school, shoot her in the back. I don't know how the fuck these fuckers got away. How? How? <gasps> They're so mischievous. I don't know, but Debbie's out there kind of keeping watch when Joyce and Timmy show up. And she's like, Timmy! So Debbie distracts Timmy while Joyce goes in. Uh, and she like notices that there's a, a few things awry around the, uh, the sink. One of the sponges has blood on it but i'm assuming she just thinks it's paint there is a scene i guess it's supposed to be suspenseful where now steven has the gun and he's hiding in a closet and he keeps pointing the gun at joyce and we get some ominous music like he's gonna shoot her he never does and, in, and what happens instead is uh, curtis takes the emo- takes the uh, uh, opportunity to, to run out of the room while joyce is distracted so she hears the door shut and she goes and looks out and she sees that Curtis has now joined Timmy and and Debbie. And as Curtis approaches Timmy and gives him this fucking smile, that fucking smile, I do not blame Jimmy one fucking bit because he literally starts beating the shit out of Curtis. I just wailing on him. He punches him in the face and gets on top of him and just starts aggressively punching him, saying, chicken, chicken, back, back, back. It's like he's violently beating this kid. And I love that they found this woman, <laughs> a horrible woman. This Her acting is atrocious. You know what I'm talking about? The teacher? Yeah. Oh, that that like elderly woman that comes running in. Yeah, in her clogs. And she's like, you leave him alone. Are you all right, Curtis? Her line delivery is is so cringy, and we don't ever find out like if was Curtis like was he injured? Like he just got the shit beat out of him. It's never really mentioned again. Back inside the classroom, Joyce hears something, so she goes to the cover cupboard, and Mrs. Davis's body falls out of the cupboard. This is the third body now, and this that has been found in the last two days, and nobody knows who the killers are. Even though, again, it's blatantly obviously Joyce knows the the kids were the last ones in that room. She knows it, and like that's what I was saying earlier. How is nobody acknowledging the fact that there all all signs are pointing to these children? Even there's that moment where Joyce comes like out of the um, out of the classroom and she steps outside. Doesn't she even see uh, Curtis like approaching? the kids from her direct from her direction like her so so yeah. it all is just very kind of obvious to me and obvious to i'm sure the viewer as well uh but i mean again who would want to suspect a child of murder even though in your gut you know what's happening i think people are just avoiding <laughs> acknowledging it 
Exactly. And it, but not only that, it's like everyone in the town just seems so like non-bothered by the fact that these people were just murdered. You would think that if a teacher that was murdered inside of a school like this in 1981, that it would be a big ordeal. Like they would shut down the school. They would shut down. I mean, there would be, I would imagine there would be a lot of panic and a lot of things put into place to keep people at bay. No, this town all they care about the next day is a fucking birthday party. Oh God, what a party though. Everyone in the town attends this birthday party after this poor teacher was just gunned down in her classroom. I love this birthday party and this cake. Oh. Decadent. So this this cop takes poor Joyce home. She gets home and she sees a note on the door that says it's from Timmy. And it says, I'm in the junkyard playing Timmy. First of all, She's like, he can't keep his promise. Do, do you not know your brother's handwriting? And do you not know the fact that if he told you he wasn't going to play in the junkyard, he probably wasn't in the junkyard. But she, whatever, she goes to look for him. There is this scene where Timmy is walking home by himself and Debbie is up in her treehouse. She calls him up to, to come up and, and you know hang out with her. So he does go up for a moment and there's this... I guess a little suspenseful moment where he sits on the ledge of the treehouse, and below him is this like metal pole that is sticking up from the ground. And we think that Debbie is going to push him off of the ledge onto it, but she gets distracted by a phone. What I like though, about this whole moment is he is so like oblivious to it. Like, like you as the viewer know, she's like, I just want to fucking push him on that goddamn pole. I want to so bad. Uh, But she's like timing it out. And then, yeah, she's distracted, like, right in the nick of time. But I really like these little moments because it just makes these kids seem so fucking sick, man. They're like, they are literally just, like, plotting death at all times. Yeah, it just, it's that's all they, they think about. I, th- I don't know, you know, this eclipse, fuck, fucked them up because they got murder on their minds. But I was like, would she really be distracted by a phone? But she she is so Timmy gets to gets to live. He he leaves and and heads out. He does see her scrapbook on the way out, and he asks her whose book is that. She's like, "That's mine." He's like, "Well, can I see it?" And she's like, "No, it's a private book." So, at the same time, Joyce is in the junkyard looking for Timmy, uh, and this is the scene that we you've alluded to a couple times where Curtis and Stephen, fuck, they may be eight, but they sure know how to hotwire a car. And why is he wearing a, he's wearing a like potato sack with holes cut out of it over his head. It It is creepy. He can't even, re- he can't reach the pedals. So literally he's steering and Curtis is on the floor of the car pushing the brake and the gas. Well, he can't reach the pedals, but he sure can fucking drive that car because he starts hunting down poor Joyce. And this is where I really started liking Joyce because I was like, God, this girl is Again, determined to survive, much like Sally Hardesty. Joyce is like literally like cramming herself like between crevices and getting up on vehicles, avoiding being plowed over by this like rampant vehicle just running all over the place. It's kind of terrifying, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's at times comedic because of the small children in the in the sack face masks. <laughs> But but it's still like very uh very um aggressive. Like I mean yeah, she she does a good job. There is that pathetic moment where she trips in that like 
pile of wires. Yes, I love that she, moment. I love that moment though. Don't don't come for that moment. She's, <laughs> and she's just like trapped, and I'm just like, oh, come on. Oh, like, like, <laughs> oh yeah. But there's a moment where she gets like, uh, she has nowhere to run, and she has to jump off this ledge. And the car, fucking, they they get the the boys get out of the car and and uh, put something on the gas so that it goes over the ledge as well. And then the deputy shows up just in time and he checks the car and lo and behold, nobody's there. At this point, if I was Joyce, okay, a dead body just fell on me. I just got almost mowed down by a a mysterious murder vehicle. I think I'd be getting Timmy and heading out of town. (laughs) Yeah. Her reactions here, I I think, are actually quite good, though. Like, she is shaken oh she she's is fucking shaken she's very good here. i'm like bitch leave like your parents aren't home leave where where are they at drive to where they're at because you you have become a target why are you, you staying are, here and then she makes decisions later on in the film that again are f- pretty fucking stupid considering everything that's happened to her they're watching and there there is now there is a news broadcast at least about this poor dead teacher and her name was viola davis <laughs> <laughs> I got a kick out of it. A cameo appearance. We get cameo appearance from one Viola Davis. There's a shot coming up here, Troy, that I really need to acknowledge. And it's just the shot of Curtis, who you find is running across properties at this time while everybody's like sitting and watching the news. And it's just a shot of a child with a gun. Like, <laughs> like you just see this kid. He's got this gun out running through the town. He is hunting. What he is doing is hunting. It is terrifying he is hunting there is a there's a few moments where he finds some targets and he gets spooked at the last minute but that's exactly what he's doing debbie is watching beverly make out with her boyfriend willard and she is like now she has this bow and arrow and she keeps sticking the arrow through the hole and i'm like how not only how does not bev see this but now how does not this other dude see this or hear this but they don't they're just they're just hot and heavy um, this is when we cut back to Joyce and Timmy and they're talking about horoscopes. And this is the only moment that it, we kind of get that is supposed to allude to the fact that it was, I guess, destiny astrology that caused these three to be the murderous little fuckers that they are. Because uh, uh, Joyce says that she was born during the eclipse when the sun and the moon were blocking Saturn. And that is not good because Saturn is what controls our emotions. So because they were born during this eclipse, they must be lacking some emotions or certain emotions. It's hippie nonsense. <laughs> hippie nonsense. She fig- she figures out that it must it must be having a conscience, that they have no conscience. And uh, fucking little Jimmy p- pipes in right away. And he's like, yep, that sounds like Curtis. I mean, yes. After what he's gone through, yeah, he would know. Absolutely. But yes, this is this is the reasoning they give us. It's very like of the era. It's sticky. I don't buy. I don't listen. I'm sorry. I love I, I all my dear friends love horoscopes. I don't I don't per- personally believe in these things or the solar eclipses or anything that happens with these boards. I don't think it really makes any sense. Um, but more power to you if you love it. I get I get it. I get the appeal. But for that to be the motivation for why people kill, <laughs> like it's just it's it's a real, very weak, um, threadbare concept. I I would agree with you, and again, it, it seems just so shoehorned in the plot, you know. And 
It is what it is. You, you said it. it is very much of the era. You know, the 70s, early 80s were definitely the time when horoscopes were starting to become a very prominent form of, let's say, entertainment. I know they, they, that's that's when they started to be printed in every news, you know, newspapers every day. People would want to look at their horoscope. So this film taking advantage of that and, and being like, oh, look, there's more sense of the unknown with what astrology can create and your your birth date really does dictate your personality and if you just happen to be born on a specific time blah 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 this you're you're going to be this type of person i don't know i mean yeah i'm a virgo i've read virgo traits i've checked out virgo horoscope some of it definitely very much sounds like me but i feel like you can you can make anything fit your personality you know what i mean like if you're if you're a leo and you're reading the leo stuff some of it is definitely going to be you you know, I mean, how hard is it to be like, oh, Leos are creative and determined. And you're like, oh, my God, that's me. I mean, it's it's all very, it's <laughs> yeah, very yes. broad. I'm not a Leo. I'm a Virgo. But I'm just saying, like, yeah. I was given that as an example. But, you know, I mean, it's all, it's like a psychic. It's like cold reading. You know, you go to a psychic and they're going to say very broad things. I see someone with the letter B in your name, in their name, who's very inf influential to your life. Do you know who that would be? Of course, everyone knows somebody with, I mean, it's it's that sort of thing, right? But this is this is yeah. total nonsense. Yeah. It's yeah. totally ridiculous. Uh, again, ugh. it's one of the my least favorite parts of the film in terms of the plot. And not to come for our listeners and their preferences with such things. Let us just be clear. Uh, we're just saying it very much feels like a product of the time where these things were at their peak. And it does feel like they try to take advantage of that. I think that it definitely feels uh, dated because of that. Oh, no. And yeah, I have, I, I'm like you. I have friends that are very much in astrology. One of my best friends, Renee, who's probably going to listen to this episode. She is very much into it. She does she does astrology charts and she's she, she's amazing at it. And some of the stuff that she is able to, to do and to determine about your personality or like decisions you should make is, is eerily accurate. But I'm saying like the horoscopes that you get, like the daily newspaper and stuff like that. I'm like, eh. You know, that stuff is so broad and so vague that you can really apply it to anything. You know, if you like that stuff, great. I'm very, I, I, hey, I, I, I'm still into it. I read hor my horoscope every once in a while. I, I'll let my friend Renee do, you know, tell me certain things. And a lot of times it's accurate. But I'm talking about specifically for the film's explanation to why these three kids are killers is because they were born on a solar eclipse is not satisfactory. It doesn't land. No, Curtis is wandering around the neighborhood. He's literally hunting. He, he comes across. He's going to shoot Joyce first. She's wearing those big old headphones watching TV. He's going to shoot her, but a car drives by and scares him off. So he goes to the next house, and then there is this little boy and girl playing catch in their backyard. He's going to shoot them. Oh, my God. This this moment, Troy, I was like shocked. I was like, are you going? Are you? Is he going to fucking shoot that child? I really thought he was going to do it. He, he almost does until um, what happens? A dog barks or something and scares him off. Just at the same moment, a van pulls into the neighborhood. And you get a young couple that just happened to park on the street. And I know this stuff happened all the time, but this just seems like weird, weird timing. It's a young couple. It looks very similar to the couple at the beginning of the film. Does it not? I, I really was like, wait, is this like a time jump? Like, are we, <laughs> are we doing a weird time jump? It looks exactly like it's a blonde girl and a, a hot looking guy who actually does. I have to give him some credit. He has a nice little ass. He shows off that milky white uh, butt. <laughs> yeah. For a brief moment. But they start, they start like they just park on the side of this residential street and literally both of them are stripped butt ass naked, more tit play. 
Uh, and they and Curtis like runs over knowing what's going on. This little fucking pervert, he climbs on the fucking hood of the car and is like staring in the windshield. Can you imagine like being one of those kids looking up at the windshield and seeing this fucking glass, this Coke bottle glass kid staring at you? Oh my God, how shocking that would be. Oh, they're so like, the, these kids have absolutely no limits whatsoever. They do not at all have any fear of being like discovered. They put themselves into situations that are very precarious yeah they do he that you know and he's outside this van lurking and they're going at it hot and heavy inside like i said both of them are are butt-ass naked they hear she hears curtis outside and she's like go look go look so he gets up he looks out the windshield doesn't see anything they go back to making it out and all of a sudden they hear a pounding on the back uh door of the van so he gets up go open the van door we do get a nice shot of his 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 little bum bare bum as he opens the van door who's standing there curtis fucking shoots him in the head this is a, a, a residential neighborhood this isn't like a lover's lane isolated this is there's houses everywhere it's literally like parked outside of debbie's house he like shoots this guy in the fucking head he flies back you see the blood pouring out of the bullet hole in his forehead and then the girl the poor girl is like screaming her fucking head off and he shoots her too this kid just shot these two down in cold blood in the middle of a suburban neighborhood and how the fuck where we just saw like he was just scared off by numerous cars so it's not like it's and then is what did he do with the bodies because nothing's mentioned about these two kids dying no it never gets brought up. It's not a big deal in this town. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, the next day is their birthday party, and no, there's no mention of two teenagers being found dead in a van right outside the house we're having this party at. <laughs> oh, this party's a hoot. Oh, and you know, I will say one thing that I am very pleased about with this whole sequence is uh, it, it leads to the reveal of the peephole. This is just one of the satisfying moments amidst many things that happen at this luxurious birthday party. And this cake... Oh my God, it's so moist. It looks delicious. All that icing. Uh, <laughs> There's, they have numerous cakes. I know. Cakes upon yeah. cakes upon This is a birthday that you deserve, these cakes. I do. Uh, yes. I need some of these cakes. You do, and enough people to come eat them as well. So, yeah, there is that moment where Beverly is watching Joyce get ready and she does show her the peephole. And then Joyce literally acts like, or Beverly literally acts like she had no idea it was there, even though, like, <laughs> It's so obvious. I never saw uh, it. Like, how? It's half the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a birthday party shenanigan. Debbie wants to kill Joyce. And actually, Curtis is like, you know what? That might not be. We might not have to do that because I have a plan to make everyone think she's crazy. So Debbie's mother, this poor alcoholic woman. <laughs> Oh my God, she's weathered. She calls the <laughs> she calls the kids up to let them blow out their birthday candles, and then this bitch cannot let her kids have a moment of of happiness. What she do? She has a fucking breakdown on at their birthday party. She's like, "There's my husband should be here." <sighs> she collapses on the ground. I'm like, "Oh, for God's sakes! Wait, were you in your kid's birthday party, honey?" She's savoring every second of the drama. She is not coping well at all there is a point later i love where you just see her get dropped off at like a psych board and i'm like you know what like i get it at this point i get it but she is not coping well she yeah she is she's just not handling the trauma like i don't know perhaps a jamie lee curtis would <laughs> but um i i mean as if i could couldn't hate these little fuckers enough what ends up transpiring 
with the icing, this whole sequence that we're kind of building up to, um, is, especially when the outcome is revealed of it, it shows just how fucking dastardly this goddamn Curtis motherfucker is. Just when you think he can't get worse, he gets so much worse. Yeah, and he definitely is diabolical. To come up with this particular plan for for him is yeah, it just shows the the that there these kids' minds are just not right because what kid would think to do this as a way to like get people not to believe her, right? So what he does is he, there's numerous cakes because literally everyone in the town is at this birthday party, right? So they have to have more than one cake. So inside, uh, he's in there putting icing, just globbing icing on the cake. So she comes in to get the second cake and she sees him and she's like, Curtis, what are you doing? You're ruining that cake. And he's just like, no, I'm not. So she takes that cake, goes out. He's in there with a, with the last cake and he is doing the same thing. But at the meantime, he picks up a bottle of ant poisoning and he, uh, you know, is doing his thing with the icing. She comes back in and he immediately like stops doing it. And you can tell he's very blatantly trying to hide something behind his back. So she asks him what it is. He backs up. She approaches him. He drops it and she sees it's the ant poisoning. Meanwhile, I love this whole sequence where we get all these close-ups of these town folk just going to town on this cake. They're all, they're just eating it and acting like it's the most <laughs> delicious thing in the world. Everyone in town is loving this cake and you are just seeing close-ups on mouths you're seeing children you're seeing elderly women gluttonously gorging on this cake and it and the whole time you as the viewer you're like oh my god this is going to be like a mass murder along the lines of like what was that was it the heavens Gate? jim jones heavens jim Gate? jones yeah. kool-aid yeah. instead of kool-aid it's the it's cake the cake i was like he's gonna just kill this whole fucking town but the outcome in a way is even it's not more morbid but it is just just as dastardly because like yes he is intentionally ensuring that people in the town have a reason to doubt joyce because she runs out of there and starts knock literally knocking cake out of everyone's hands. Don't eat the cake. <laughs> Don't eat the cake. And everyone's like, what, what? And then did you see that moment? And it, it's never like, it's never shown again. Do you see that one little boy that like grabs his stomach and bends over? Yes. What, what was that about? Yeah. I think it's something where he's like, he was like, I'm going to die. Like, he's like, <laughs> oh God, I feel it already. You know, like, but, but, but Curtis comes out and, and people are like, what's going on? And, and, and Joyce is like, he had, he was poisoning the cake. He's poisoning the cake. And Curtis comes out and he's like, I was not poisoning the cake. I, I saw the ant poison on the counter and I was just going to put it back. He's like, you're a little fucking liar. And then his grandpa, this enabling fucking grandpa oh, I was like, him. he's never told a lie in his life. Watch your mouth, missy. I hate that. Uh, that grandfather. I yearned to see that old man die. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, the grandpa's not having nothing of it. So he's like, give me that cake. Give me that cake. I'm eating that frosting. So he takes a big old finger full of frosting and eats it in front of her. And of course, nothing happens. And then he, Curtis does the same thing with that shitty grin that I just wanted to punch. When Curtis takes, when Curtis takes a glob of that frosting and licks it off his fingers and he just smiles at her, I just was like, oh, you little bastard. I've never wanted to hit a child more than I want to hit 
this fucking Curtis. And I'm not, and listen, let's be clear. I'm not looking to be hitting any children to ever. Let's, I'm not, I don't want to hit children. But this child, he, mm, he is trying me in so many ways. And just to top it off, that fucking goddamn smile. You, you mentioned it a few times, and you, Troy, it really is the most shit-eating grin I've ever seen. It's just such a shitty little prick of a smile. I fucking hate him so much. And she grabs him, and she starts shaking him, and the grandpa's like, you leave him alone. She's like, you, you did this on purpose, didn't you? You wanted people to think I'm crazy. And of course, the grandpa's like, that's my little grandson. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Fuck you, the manipulation. The manipulation is insane, but also impressive to be coming from a child. <laughs> There's a scene now that comes up where Joyce and Timmy are at home and they hear a noise and she grabs like a trophy and is like sneaking through the house trying to see if somebody's there. She comes to the uh, patio doors and it's open and she's like, Timmy, did you open the door? And he's like, no. And uh, it's drawn out and it ends up just being her boyfriend. Let's talk about this boyfriend real quick, because this is like, I'm pretty sure the only time we ever see this guy. It is. And he just, he disappears. Yeah. I feel like this is a character that was in the movie and they like ended up, they had to cut him out because you don't get any introduction even to the idea of her having a boyfriend until you get to this moment. I don't even, yeah, I don't even think his, his name is mentioned, but apparently he's away at college, Um, but he's here now and there's this like tender moment supposedly between the two of them where she's telling him that she doesn't want to go to college that she wants to stay home and be a reporter blah 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 and i mean that's about the extent of it that you don't that's it it's it's a conversation the two of them have and he's never seen again because it it cuts to beverly getting ready for her date when she can't find her nail polish and she thinks that uh debbie took her nail polish so she storms into Debbie's room and throws open her dresser drawers looking for her nail polish. And what does she find, Roger? She finds that goddamn mean girl's burn book of, of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with pictures of everyone that has been killed in the town so far, including their father. Yeah, dark. Dark, dark. Dark. Shit. And Debbie comes in. Debbie comes in and she's like, you give me that property. And, and. Uh, Bev's like, what are you, some sort of little ghoul? I'm going to go show mom. And now mom gets her big scene. Never again. (laughs) This mother's reaction, like, the thing is, all she has is big scenes, first of all. She doesn't have any moments that are anything on, like, a normal, average, everyday uh, kind of calm demeanor. Everything she does is this big overblown response but like it makes sense because her life is just chaos and like everything is falling apart but this whole moment where she sees this book and she's like i don't want carlos in my house you're never saying about her again like she just she, she loses it and i get it the thing is girl like i get it and it's about to get worse for you too so get ready <laughs> Well, yeah, because Debbie tells her mom that it's Curtis's book. It's not hers, that Curtis left it over there. And so the mother says, burn it, burn it. So Bev has to take it to the fireplace and and burns poor Debbie's mean girl book in the fireplace. Now, there is this moment where Debbie sneaks up behind her with the fireplace poker and is going to hit her in the head with it. But she turns around just in time. and She's like, give me that. 
And then she like taunts her. She's like, how do you like that? Angel face. Yeah. I like that. They literally burn the burn book. Um, deserved because these children are horrible. Um, but now you know that unfortunately Beverly is definitely on the shit list. Like there ain't no way. Oh, well she goes back to her room to finish getting dressed and Debbie is pissed. So Debbie now gets her trusty bow and arrow and is knocking on the wall with the bow so that Bev comes over and gets inches close to the peephole. And it's like, what are you doing in there? You little freak. Now I'm, I, okay. We've discussed this, but that hole was totally big enough that if Bev was three feet away from it, she's going to see that there's an arrow sticking out of the hole. It's played like she doesn't see it. So she gets to the hole and right as she's nearing the hole with her eye, Debbie shoots the arrow in her eye and that's the end of poor Beth. I really like the shot of her walking up to the hole. Like it is a cool shot, but just logistically it doesn't really work. Like even if like if she launched either she, you know, she fires the arrow and it gets, it would, it somehow is strategically fit through that hole, which yes, it's a reasonably large hole, but still it is not easy to, get an arrow through a hole of that size so either she fired it with great precision great aim uh, but then i would expect the arrow would go all the way through the back of the head with such force so then it leads me to also think that maybe she just jabbed it into her eyeball like just a strong jab but then like i feel like the end of the arrow like the stick would get caught like it's not like the thing would go that like I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem like it'd be such a clean transition, but somehow like she's up arrows sticking out of her eye and she's down. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like way too fluid to me. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It's a very awkwardly edited scene. Yes. Yeah. And you know, kind of, I mean, it's a cool death in theory, but it just logistically doesn't make a lot of sense for everything from, because of everything we just mentioned. I, I really honestly believe that she would have seen the arrow. The hole is that big that you would have totally seen it and not inched close to close enough to have it shoved in your eye. And then, yeah, just the whole execution of the actual impact looks very awkward, but she's dead on the floor. And, and Debbie calls Curtis and Steven to come over to help her dispose of the body. <sighs> I was bummed. Like, you know, you said like Beverly doesn't get a last screen time and, like, yeah, she just definitely doesn't, um, her character doesn't get to live up to her potential. Uh, because it's still, it's what, maybe like halfway in at this point, it's a little bit past that. Uh, and she's gone now. She's dead. And it's disappointing because she was a lot of fun. She had a lot of character. But now we just get more of this mother just crumbling before our eyes. But they don't even hide the body. They, 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 they put the body on, on her bedspread oh, man. and yeah. drag her out to the alley and just like leave her there. This and is, then we dark, That's but dark, we don't, man. we don't get any, like, how do they not know that she was murdered in her own house when she's lying on her own bedspread? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, a lot of questions. First of all, I, the shot of her just laying there on the side of the street is rather horrifying. I mean, it really is is a morbid shot. Um, the fact that they just left her there like that, like just abandoned her body there. But then, uh, like uh, as everything kind of like unfolds, the mother has this moment where she walks back in. You know, she's fucking a mess, and she sees that um, Debbie is like scrubbing the carpet, 
and Debbie like says, she's like, oh, you know, it's nail polish. I dropped nail polish. But then like, obviously the body is found reasonably fast and the mother, like, I, I get it. Again, her life is crumbling, but if you're not able to put two and two together and realize that your child is now directly associated with both of your family members' deaths, like if you can't piece that together while looking at her scrubbing, literally scrubbing blood from the carpet, like, I don't know. I mean, it's right there in front of you. It's right there. Exactly. And the body being found in your front yard on the bedspread. I mean, it's so obvious that she was killed in the house. So yeah, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And you know what? They, they say fuck you to the audience. They don't even try to explain it. All they do is because they cut right to Bev's funeral and everyone's crying. Nobody seems to suspect anything. And after the funeral, yeah, Bev's mom fucking checks into a mental hospital. It's a very, it's a very abrupt cut to the funeral too. Like it's like, boom, funeral. You're there. This breakdown another good one i mean she's really given her all and uh yeah she uh she gives a really big reaction and then she goes into a mental hospital and it's probably for the best all things considered and after that the kids are just playing tag like it's no big deal like they haven't just been killing people left and right family members well and they they're going to continue the killing streak too because as they're playing some boy that that one there's this one boy throughout the film that's been like kind of a dick to him which uh, hey, more. he's the one that grabs his stomach and like hurls over. And then like at the beginning of the film in the classroom scene, he shoots a spitball at Curtis and calls him a kiss ass. But he comes up and he throws bricks at their front window of Debbie's house. And Debbie's like, oh, it's not going to do anything. My dad put up special glass. Yeah. Oh, come on. I know. I know. It's like, oh, OK, you're trying to set that up so that what happens here in a few minutes. Okay. But they chase this poor boy down and Curtis and Steven get him and they're like choking him to death, literally like on top of him, choking him to death and he's kicking and flailing. And he happened to land like on the side of Joyce's house. And he's, when he's kicking and flailing, he's hitting her hose, which is causing the sprinkler that's going off in her front yard to like move. So she has to go over and see what it is. And she sees them that they're choking him. And Debbie sees her coming right away and then debbie's like acts like she's miss angel saying oh quit it you're gonna hurt him you're gonna hurt him and she like grabs curtis and's like what are you doing you were choking him weren't you and curtis is like you get your hands off me or my grandpa will sue you (laughs) a few things first of all curtis is now entering a level of like right-wing conservative uh, uh bile that he is spewing like he is just crazy the fact that this child is able to like speak to somebody like this it's really like i don't know he does a very good job of it but it's just like no holds barred just outwardly hostile to her and it it really is very toxic and it's 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 a lot. It's a lot. He's a lot to watch. At times, he's uncomfortable to watch just of the way he talks to people and how he has absolutely no regard for any adult, any superior. He doesn't give a fuck. He he basically gives a fuck you to all of them. That aside, this whole bit with the sprinkler, I think, is really well played. I like this. I like how like how that's how she's lured over. And it does show that Debbie, because this is not the first time in the movie that Debbie has kind of thrown the other boys under the bus to avoid suspicion for herself. She had another moment earlier in the film where she did something similar on a smaller scale. She said the burn book was 
Curtis is. She blamed it on him. So now here we have this again where she kind of turns on them just to avoid, uh, you know, the, the suspicion on herself. And it shows just what a, a little bitch she fucking really is. Well, and then that that's that grin she gives, the grin she gives Joyce is it, it kind of at the end of the scene is just like, ugh, you know, these kids. So they realize, the three of them realize that Joyce has to go. So her pick is now put in, Debbie must have went out and purchased a, a brand new scrapbook because now we have Joyce's picture going in the scrapbook. And as Joyce is doing some sharpening of tools in her garage, Debbie comes over to her and says, hey, you know, my mom's not going to be home. Can you come over and babysit tonight? And Bev's like, sure. What time? She's like, oh, seven. And, you know, it's like one of those things where all this shit's happening. This little girl would be the last thing I'd want to do is babysit. You're like, her sister was just like, it's too much, too much. But Joyce agrees. So as Timmy and Joyce are at Debbie's house, kind of getting relaxed. Curtis shows up at the window with Steven and they're like going to shoot her again. And Curtis is like, it's bulletproof glass, you idiot. And we get maniacal Debbie. Like she knows how to bypass this giant security system. I like that. Like at this point, the kids are just pretty much out in the open. Like they make it very easy to be discovered. And then after that, they're not even like trying to be discreet about it. They are just coming at them from all angles and oh this is a this is definitely a a siege this they're under attack now because she lets them in the house uh curtis messes with the uh the security system he like pulls wires out of it and stuff steven cuts the phone lines i mean they're going they have a plan they have a plan they go into the living room again poor joyce has these giant headphones on timmy's asleep on the couch Steven points the gun at, at Joyce and is going to pull the trigger, but Timmy awakes because he hears the click and he immediately says, duck. So Joyce ducks. And this fucking little boy starts shooting at Joyce and Timmy in the middle of this goddamn living room. It's wild. It's wild. I mean, he is, he's chasing him around, like shooting. He's shooting out the windows. He's shooting out the TV screen. They're running around freaking out. There's this moment where like he runs out of, bullets and has to stop to reload and we see that it's only a six shooter but that doesn't make sense here in a, in a, in a few minutes with the scene but then like you have fucking you have debbie popping out of a fucking closet <laughs> with her rope trying to strangle uh joyce it's it's wild it's wild oh my god it's they're absurd. popping These out everywhere are like hellbent they're hell-bent on murder. It's like the scene in The Wizard of Oz where Glinda comes out and the munchkins are like emerging from the bushes, only like violent. Because they're like in every nook and cranny of the fucking house. Uh, but I, I do enjoy how this scene progresses. I just found it kind of jarring, not necessarily in a bad way, just a little shocking how at this point they don't even care that they're being discovered. Like they're not even tr- – like there's no way that – they're going to be able to mow both of them down without at least being seen in the midst of it, you know, but they're not, it's not like where they're wearing masks. It's not like they're trying to hide behind anything. They're just coming in, arming themselves and trying to fucking 
shoot or stab these fuckers to death. And it is a very violent concept when you think of it, again, being children. It's like the strangers, but children. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 they have a mission. They have a goal. And they are, they're, the, the three of them work very well together to try to accomplish this. There is the moment where Debbie strang- gets, gets a hold of Timmy and gets the rope around his neck and is strangling him. But, but uh, Joyce throws a lamp at her. I like that. Knocked knock Debbie on her ass with a lamp, but they end up getting into Bev's bedroom and barricading themselves in. And all the while, like Curtis is outside firing multiple shots. Okay. So the gun we just saw, he had six rounds in it in the living room because he wants, he went through the six rounds and he had to reload. And we saw that it was a six shooter in this particular scene. When he's shooting into the bedroom, count how many bullets he's firing because it's probably 30. Oh my god! Okay. Yeah, I mean it's ridiculous, like a total total goof there. But I mean that was I just noticed it like the second time I watched. I'm like, wait, we just saw this was a six shooter and he had to reload, but now he's literally firing thirty shots. Joyce gets on the phone to try to call for help, but the phone line's been cut. And in the meantime, Debbie is back out in her, in her closet through that fucking peephole, firing arrows into the room. Oh my god! There's no way to escape. There's nowhere to hide. These children, they're so small and nimble, they can get at you from any direction it truly is rather terrifying like it it feels like it kind of makes me think of like a similar tone of like when we watch the brood like yes these children are not like mutated but they're still just so tiny and that makes them in a way more threatening to me i find what makes this this particular scene so effective is just how hell-bent they are on killing and they are just there's like there's like no reasoning to with them at all i mean they have all three of them have one mission and they are as small and as you know unintimidating as they might seem they are hell-bent on this mission and i'm sorry they put up a pretty good fight i'd be terrified i mean i i don't know you have you know what would you do then fucking steven is able to actually get past the barricade that they have in front of the door. And he comes in with a big old fucking butcher knife looking like he is ready to do some business. He's going to stab the shit out of these two. However, Joyce has picked up a fish bowl and instead of, I would, I'm sorry, I would have smashed the whole bowl on this kid's head. I wouldn't have cared. All she does is dump the water out on his head. I'm like, Joyce, come on. You should have bashed him in the head with this fish bowl and broke it over his head. But she was able to stun him long enough to grab him and throw him into a trunk and shut him into the trunk. Okay, I love that he's thrown into a trunk. Like, I do. But I, um, for as extreme as this movie seemed to get at times, I am very disappointed that not one of these children meets their demise. And I'm not trying to, like, spoil shit. Like, let's hope that people who are listening to this have watched it. But, like, this is the first of three of them, where you learn that none of these children die after the horrible things they've done. And it is very uh, unsatisfying for me as a viewer. I I have the same note. I'm wondering, I mean, it's okay for us to sit there and watch the children gleefully murder their parent, but we can't see one of them die or or even the insinuate. It could have been an off-screen death. Like, let her, let, uh, you know, Joyce get a gun and shoot and we know that the kid died, but we don't have to see it. But yeah, all th- yeah, it was kind of a weird choice for them to allow all of the kids to die. Even though, I mean, the ending, I guess, well, no, it's not. I was going to say the ending, I guess, is satisfactory, at least for two of them, but it's really not. 
Yeah, so she's able to lock Stephen in this trunk and she runs out into the cabinet to get the gun because she knows that Bev's dad kept the gun in the cabinet. She gets the gun. She pulls it on Curtis. He comes in and he tells her that it's just a replica. And he goes to shoot her, but his gun is empty, which is no fucking surprise considering he shot 30 shots out of a six shooter. But I love this little moment because it's like an oh shit moment for Curtis. But you see Jimmy kind of chuckle and then Jimmy like charges him and knocks him to the floor and is like beating the shit out of him. And they tie him up. In the meantime, Debbie doesn't stay to help her two friends. She sneaks out of the house. I love that about Debbie. I love that for her. She's sensible. She's like, I'm getting the fuck she out She always of here. avoids, you know, taking the blame uh, or being in the middle of shit. She doesn't like getting her hands dirty. She just likes being on the sidelines and, you know, occasionally firing arrows uh, into people's eye sockets. Uh, so I like that she just gets the fuck out of there. I would try to do the same thing if I were Debbie with my sensible braids and my uh, pink ensembles. Uh, that One thing, again, you know, I really wanted Curtis to die horribly. I cannot emphasize how badly I wanted to see him die. Watching him get beat up by Timmy, not nearly as satisfying, but I'll take it, at least because Timmy... Timmy's been harassed by these fuckers. He has been the subject of some horrible torture. And I was happy that he at least got to beat the shit out of this punk. Yeah, yeah. But it's still, he should have, like, why are they being, why are Joyce and Timmy, after knowing what these kids have done, why are they being so, like, careful not to, like, inflict serious injury on him? Like, again, she dumps water on Steven. You have to realize at this point when these kids are coming at you with guns, knives, arrows, that, hey, these are the ones that have been killing everybody. So why are you going to treat them so delicately when they're coming after you? It doesn't make much sense. But they are able to um, to call the police. Timmy runs out of the house, calls the police. In the meantime, Debbie's outside running down the street when her mom conveniently pulls up. And, uh, and Debbie's like, Mom, Mom, we got to get out of here. Uh, Curtis and, and Stephen did something really bad. And Joyce is going to blame me for it, too. And she's like, what are you talking about? And all of a sudden... The mother sees all of these cops pull up at her house. So instead of like going to see what happened, she like has Debbie get in and she like turns, <laughs> backs away and drives off. You know what? This woman, ugh. I mean, I get it. At this point, just run. Like run. Your life is a nightmare. Uh, you have nothing left in this shithole town. Uh, aside from death and destruction and your child has caused most of it, just go into a world of denial and drive away. And that's exactly what she does. And I'm, you know, I'm impressed by this decision. Um, I think that <laughs> this woman is who I would be <laughs> at this point as well. So I feel like I can relate to this mother. I like this character a lot. She's crazy. Yeah. She, she gets away with her, her daughter, you know, after all she's been through, I guess she can't blame her, but uh, and then we cut to what seems to be, you know, maybe a few days later where the kids, the boys, Curtis and Steven, are leaving the police station as Joyce and Timmy and a few of their, I think it's her parents, watch them leave. And as Curtis gets into the cop car, the back of the car, he just gives that shit-eaten grin to Joyce. 
He's just smirking away. Like this little bastard, he got caught. He's He's been caught and he's still fucking arrogant and cocky. Now, we get this ending scene. And I don't know how you feel about this, but it is Debbie and her mom are now at this like desolate looking hotel in the middle of the desert. Debbie is no longer being called Debbie. She's being called Bev, which I find extremely morbid. <laughs> this is uh, she's being called the name of the sister that she killed. Yeah, that is that's definitely some dark shit. And her mom's like, yeah, your name is Bev now. And she's like, mommy, that's good. I, I promise I'm going to be your good little girl from now on. And I don't know if we're supposed to like insinuate that the mom knows that Debbie was involved and is like purposely like hiding her. I'm assuming so because why would she want to change her name? They've taken on alternate aliases, I guess. At this point, it's real weird. But why? So are we to are we to assume the mother knows that her daughter is a little killer? Now, did she call her Bev or did she call her Beth? Because I thought she said. Her name is now Beth Simpson. I swear she said Bev. And I watched it like three times. And every time I thought she said Bev. And I'm like, that's fucking morbid. It could be Beth. I, mean, I don't know. I thought she said Bev. Because their last names are never mentioned. So I don't know if like, was their last name? I don't know. Either way, either way, whether it's Bev or Beth. And if one of our listeners want to chime in and tell us what's correct, I could be wrong. I, I will totally admit it. I think it's actually way more morbid if it is Bev. So if it's Beth, I think the screenwriters missed out on an opportunity to be extremely morbid. But that's just my two cents. Again, this insinuation is the mother knows. Yeah. Oh, she's well aware. The mother is living a life of denial at this point. Yes. Yes. And it's fine. That's why Be- That's why Debbie tells her, I promise to be your good little girl from now on. And they get in the car, pull away as the camera slowly pans to this semi and we get closer and closer to the front of it and we see there is a dead body of the semi driver under a semi so as debbie is telling her mother that she's going to be her good little girl from now on she literally just murdered a semi driver with her mom right there so how did the mom not see but but that's the end of the movie they're off the mother and debbie are off doing god knows what yeah, it's it's a very cool ending, I think. I'll be honest. I love that final reveal. I, I feel overall, Debbie was... Again, I feel like she got her hands dirty the least. Like, she always did the luring. She was always the one that kind of, like, did everything from a safe distance. Even when she killed her sister, is from hidden with the, you know, the bow and arrow. But I think that to see the body, like, just laying there dead, meaning she's just now killing for for sport, for pleasure. She just kills this random fucking uh, semi-truck driver. Like, that's fucking creepy as hell. Like, I really like that ending because if if anything, I feel that now she knows that the mother is in complete denial. She's free to just do whatever the fuck she wants as long as she plays good to the mom, you know? And uh, that's such a dark note to end it on, but it's a very dark movie. It is a very dark movie. It's a very dark ending and a very dark movie. I, I, I feel like, though, they could have gone a little bit darker. You know, I, for the most part, again, the movie's a fun watch. It's a fun watch. I just have some issues with, as I mentioned at the beginning, it came out so close to Happy Birthday to me, and I feel like that's just a, a far superior film um, that doesn't really lean into the absurdity that this one seems to do. I, I mean, I felt like, I feel like this one had a, uh, you know, the, the writers had a premise. They had an idea, not a terrible idea, but just, I don't even want to say the execution, just the, 
the script and 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 whatnot I, I feel was just pretty pretty lazy nothing got nothing was really fleshed out as maybe as much as it needed to be to really have the impact that I think they wanted the film to have. I think that's very fair. I think that um, they are a little lazy at certain points within, within the script, within the writing of the script, plot points, how things um, unfold, and just how oblivious everyone is to everything going on. It makes for a fun watch. Like, you know, I can see, I can look past all of those things uh, and just acknowledge that this movie is very enjoyable for me. I had a blast watching it, um, but it it is definitely full of nonsense. Um, it does not make plausible sense much of the time. These children are all obviously the culprits right off the bat, and anyone who doesn't notice that deserves to die. Um, but I guess in a way, it makes it all the more enjoyable the fact that everyone is just so like so oblivious to these children. They everyone deserves to die. I mean, yeah, if you can't figure out, I mean, there were so many moments where I was like, are you serious? Like nobody, how do you not know that this was, these kids are involved and why is nobody taking all of these dead bodies showing up around town more seriously? You know, like literally the teacher is gunned down and the next day they're having a fucking birthday party where all the whole town's invited and they're just gleefully chewing on cake. It's just, yeah, I, I don't know some of the decisions, but as you said, it's entertaining. And I guess at the end of the day, that's all we really want our slasher movies to do is entertain us, you know, and this one does it. This one does it. And again, I appreciate the bleak ending. I, I wish it would have gone a little bleaker, but, you know, I, I get it. And it's one of the few standalone slasher films from the 80s that never had a sequel. So we don't really know what became of, of little Debbie and her mother who's slipping into God knows what. Hopefully she got some medication. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> or yeah, hopefully the mother got some medication. Debbie, I'm sure Debbie's still killing, still wearing pigtails and killing to this day. I need that sequel. I need to see Debbie 40 years later, what she's up to. Definitely. But that's Bloody Birthday, folks. A, a An appropriate title for my birthday. Hopefully you enjoyed it and again remember what i said i have two little i have two things you can do for my birthday that would make me ecstatic leave us a five star rating and review or check out our patreon and with that roger i'm going to let you reveal to the listeners what our next pick is i am very excited for this next selection I, I mean, this is one of my fucking favorites, and it's one that I think has not only withstood the test of time, but it has grown in popularity and appreciation over the test of time. It is a sequel that, in my opinion, in many ways, outshines the first entry. And I like the first entry plenty fine, but God, this sequel. I'm talking about none other than Final Destination 2. My favorite in the series. I love so many things about this movie. Not just that amazing car crash sequence. I like a lot about Final Destination 2. And I'm going to be talking about it in depth. As, as we tend to do, Troy and I. We get in real deep. Just like Troy's going to get in this evening for his birthday. Wink, wink. <laughs> deep into some cake. Mm. Well, deep mm -hmm. into some cake either way. <laughs> 
Yeah, I I am ex- I am very excited to discuss Final Destination too. I I would agree with you that I think it's a sequel that surpasses the original, and there's so much I I, I can't wait to discuss with you. It, so, yeah, I think that's a perfect choice for for this month for our main feed, and it's gonna be a good one. It's gonna be a good one. It's gonna be a great one. AJ Cook alone, sign me up. Oh, for sure, Allie Larder. Though again, my friend, my friend says my friend's friend went to college with Ellie Larder and she said that she's the biggest slut in her college. So oh I don't goodness. know if that's the case. I ain't slut shaming, but she was really bad about it. So I, this is from another woman. So, but I still like Ellie Larder just fine. How could I not love her after Obsessed? Oh, I love it. Oh yeah, she's great. She's great. Slut or not, I I, I love I me prefer. some Ellie Larder. Yeah, good for her. I prefer I mean, her being a little bit. If I was a woman and looked like that, hell. Yes. Yes. God, I love her. All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> on that all note, that. <laughs> on that note, gosh, Lord, hopefully she never runs across oh, this. I'm not, I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it. Just, Just know it. <laughs> on that note folks we are going to bid you adieu have a great night again happy birthday to me check out apple podcasts leave us a good review because we entertain you every week for two plus hours there you go good night <laughs> that was beautiful we started with a song we ended with a song good night <laughs> uh, okay okay <laughs>